0: Thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Let's pray before we begin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As usual, there are printed copies of the sermon at the back of the church for those of you who are hard of hearing or for those for whom English is not your first language. So we come to the third of our studies in the first letter of Peter. Two weeks ago, Zane introduced the letter, and last week, Jean spoke on verses three to 12. Of chapter one, majoring on the people of hope, the sure and certain hope of our Christian faith. Today, we're looking at the next section, verses 13 to 21, which we've entitled, A Holy People. We're gonna look at getting our thinking straight on what holiness is, and then see the four reasons why Peter tells us to be holy, finishing with some suggestions about how it works in practice. It's important to realize that Peter starts this section with the word, therefore. He has so far in the letter spoken about the salvation, past, present, and future that has come to us through Jesus. Now, how is that salvation to be worked out in our daily lives? He first of all speaks of the importance of thinking correctly. The authorised version has that wonderful phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, which actually is a literal translation of the Greek. In Middle Eastern culture of the time, their long robes had to be tucked up and secured in their belts for active work. The phrase actually is very reminiscent of Exodus 12, 11, where the children of Israel were to eat the first Passover with your loins girded because they had to be ready to leave Egypt. In fact, this whole passage has shadows of the first Passover. Translators have therefore thought of other ways of conveying the meaning of these words. The NOV says, with minds that are alert." The ESV says, preparing your minds for action. We might say, get your thinking straight. I think, therefore I am, is the famous quote by René Descartes, the 17th century philosopher. I propose for this passage we could rephrase that into, I think, therefore I act, or I think, therefore I speak. Because what goes on in our minds is critical to everything else in our lives. A battle goes on in our minds. In our day in particular, we're assaulted by all manner of ideas and images on the television, the internet, movies, and printed form. It all assaults our eyes, our ears, and our minds. Remember, as Jim Packer wisely notes, Satan, the father of lies and a past master at deluding, labors constantly to mislead and muddle God's people. Great phrase that. Satan is trying to muddle our thinking. So Peter's already outlined the nature of salvation in the previous verses. Now therefore, he says, be clear in your minds what this salvation looks like in your everyday lives before our hope is fully revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, God commands us as his new covenant people to be holy. Darrell Charles sums up the opening verses in this way. The Christian lifestyle, according to Peter, takes on a conspicuous shape. It will be mentally prepared, self-controlled, anchored in divine grace, obedient and not conforming to the desires associated with the former life, and most important, exhibiting of the divine character of holiness. In a word, it will be countercultural. Now the word holy is not a word we hear much these days in everyday conversation. You don't sort of hear it said as you speak to the Check out lady. We don't even hear, hear the word sanctification, which is the process of becoming holy. I must confess to being old enough to remember holiness conventions, where devout Christians gathered to hear how they might become more holy in their everyday lives. A few years earlier than my experience, Jim Packer declared that in his youth, Personal holiness was an absorbing focus of evangelical interest. And a century earlier, Robert Murray McShaney's prayer was, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. It seems we've moved on from those days, but perhaps we've lost something. Perhaps we've lost something of that desire for. Personal holiness that should motivate our Christian lives. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to clearly define the terms we're using. As holiness can easily be reduced to some sort of caricature of the real thing. And thus dismissed as irrelevant to modern living. The word holy appears numerous times in both the Old and the New Testaments. It's used primarily of God himself as the one word that sums up his uniqueness. He is the holy other. He is the almighty, the creator of all things, perfect in power, purity, love, and goodness, as we were just singing. This immediately sets him apart from other gods and from the created order. The word holy is also used in the Old Testament to describe things that were set apart for sacred use. For example, buildings, places, items within the temple, priests, and the Sabbath. But it's also used to describe all the people of God. They are to be set apart for the worship and service of the one true God, demonstrating the moral character of God to the surrounding people. Here in verse 16, Peter quotes the Old Testament for New Testament people. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. (coughs) The command is actually found four times in Leviticus, chapter 11, twice, 19, and and, and chapter 20, as if to emphasize the importance of it. So under the new covenant, we learn that God's purposes for his people is the same as the old covenant. He wants them to be distinguished by the fact that they are holy. They are to carry his likeness in their everyday lives. So it's not surprising that the common word used to describe the people of God in the New Testament is saints, the holy ones. Now, our problem is that we don't know what holiness looks like. Or it seems to be so out of reach that we struggle with the idea of holiness. We certainly don't want to be accused of being holier than thou. We struggle until we realize that Jesus is called the Holy One. Peter declared to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And again in Acts 3, at Solomon's portico, Peter says to the crowd, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One. The apostles saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Holy One described in Psalm 16, who would not see corruption, And in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus is described as the Holy One. So in essence, being made holy is another way of saying becoming like Jesus. Now what set Jesus apart in the New Testament was he didn't fit the model of holiness that the Jewish people had built up. They criticised him. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. To them, being holy was being separated from sinners. Jesus was separated from sinners because he was holy. But being with sinners didn't stop him being holy. The followers of Jesus are indwelt by the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And growth in holiness is becoming more of who we are in Christ. Lawrence Richards helpfully explains, the Old Testament maintained strict separation between the holy and the profane. In the New Testament, holiness is true goodness woven through the lifestyle of the believer and expressed in every daily activity and in every relationship. True goodness woven through the lifestyle of the believer. This helpfully picks up Peter's all-encompassing phrase, be holy in all your conduct or in all you do, verse 15. But verses 14 to 15 contain God's command To be holy its a command. It's not an optional extra for serious Christians. It's a command for all of us as God's people. It's the message of the whole of the New Testament to the people of God. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The writer to the Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter in his second letter continues the theme, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So all God's people are commanded to be holy. And Peter in this passage gives us three other reasons why we should be holy. We should be obedient children of our Heavenly Father because of the fear of the Lord and because of the cost of our redemption. Firstly, we're to be obedient children. The picture is of children who obey and trust their parents and genuinely look up to them as examples to follow. So the message is, trust your heavenly father, that he's the best in view for you. He is utterly trustworthy. You see, holiness, surprisingly, is actually all about becoming more Human, but importantly, human as God originally intended us to be. Holiness gets a bad press because Satan wants to encourage the opposite behaviour within our lives. James Philip helpfully wrote, The greatest saints of God have been characterised not by halos and an atmosphere of distant unapproachability, but by their humanity, they have been intensely human and lovable people with a twinkle in their eyes. Jesus was the greatest human being there was, and Christians are meant to be as human as Jesus. Secondly, because of the fear of the Lord, and this has troubles, we we get a bit worried about this. Edmund Clowney writes, Peter, therefore, does not call us to soul-destroying dread. The judge is our father, who's begotten us to be his children and given us a sure hope as heirs of his blessing. Yet Peter does call us to reverent fear. Our father is the living God. He is holy. We're called to reverence submission to God. We should never take liberties with God or presume upon his fatherly goodness, for he is the judge of all men. F. W. Faber in his hymn, My God, How Wonderful Thou Art, has this verse. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest tenderest fears and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. The deepest, tenderest fears captures the Christian fear of God very well. Thirdly, because of the cost of our redemption, verse 18. In the world of the New Testament, slaves could be redeemed with money. They could be set free if they saved up the money or if someone else provided it. The law of Moses spoke of redemption money being paid to release slaves. But Peter could well be thinking of the first Passover when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and were redeemed by the blood of a lamb. The lamb was selected on the tenth day And kept until the 14th day to make sure it had no defects. Before it was killed and the blood painted on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. In the same way Jesus at the time of Passover was the perfect lamb. Whose blood redeemed or ransomed the people of God. Jesus' last cry from the cross was one word in Greek which we have translated, it is finished. It's the word that was posted on the door of a jail when a man's debt was paid in full. Their ransom has been paid. So Jesus has redeemed us from the slavery of sin and from the futility of our previous lives so that we can now walk in newness of life. If our salvation cost us so much, and we're now his children, how can we sin and be ungrateful, disloyal to him, and waste the fruits of his death? But how does it work in practice? All this holiness stuff, Paul's words to the Philippians are very helpful here. Therefore, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? You work it out, and God is at work in you, enabling you to do it. You see, this is all part of the new people of God. It's all about relationship. And what's more, God has put his Holy Spirit within each one of us. You see, once we become Christians, we don't become automatons. We don't become like a load of Daleks. Holiness, holiness, holiness. Holiness. <laughs> It's all about relationship. And that relationship with God needs to grow. As Jim Packer said, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. And because it's a relationship, it needs to grow. It's a process. As a biologist I tend to think of plants as an illustration. We're given a plant and we have to feed it and water it for it to develop properly. In the same way, to become holy, we need feeding with prayer, Bible study, repentance for where we go wrong, discipline and self-control. But the life within us is from the Spirit of God ever enabling and encouraging us to live the life of Christ. So that's how holiness, growth in holiness, occurs. My time's up. But Peter's letter is not a clear logical succession of ideas, but he comes back to themes he's already touched on. So we're going to return to holiness again later in this letter. May God grant us strength and joy to persevere in and not abandon our own journey into holiness. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website, or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me Zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening.